Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 20th, 2016. This should be an interesting program. I've invited Bill Johnson on the program to talk about, well, Michael Brown's softball spin control interview with Bill Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really crazy, bizarre things being said out there. We take the time to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, Conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God to test and see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says or, well, if they're twisting God's word, generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, engaging in all kinds of innovation rather than exegesis, and, well, just generally making a mess of all things, uh, rather than discipling people in what Jesus taught and commanded. Yeah, that's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. So this is going to be an interesting episode. We don't do a lot of interviews here, but now we you know, have like two back-to-back interviews. I uh, recorded a conversation that I had earlier with uh, Phil Johnson as we discussed a very important topic, and that is uh, Dr. Michael Brown's recent interview with Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Redding, California, and um, it, it, complete mishandling of that particular interview. And it was clear that he had an agenda, and his agenda was not actual biblical truth and getting to the bottom of you know whether or not Bill Johnson really is a true teacher of God's word or not. No, this was all about spin control and whitewashing and dismissing the very valid criticisms and concerns that are out there from Christians who know their Bible um, regarding the teachings and false prophecies and false miracles and false claims of you know direct revelation and nonsense like that from Bill Johnson. And so let's just get right to it. Here is uh, my conversation recorded earlier with Phil Johnson regarding Michael Brown and Bill Johnson. Here we go. 
All right. On the line, I have uh, Phil Johnson. Uh, he's the right-hand man for jo- Dr. John MacArthur. He works over at Grace to You Ministries. He's a good friend and uh, and a friend here of uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. I have invited him on the program to discuss um, the recent interview uh, given by Bill Johnson, not to be confused with Phil Johnson, uh, on the Michael Brown, uh, you know, firing line program. Uh, Phil, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. It's a great pl- privilege to be here. Okay, so you you heard the uh, the interview. Um, initial thoughts, because I'd like to walk through a couple of things on the interview. I was uh, quite shocked by it myself. I thought this was probably one of the most um, badly handled interviews ever in the name of discernment and dispelling heresy and stuff like that. But I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, in all candor, it didn't shock me at all or surprise me. It's, it struck me as classic Michael Brown. I have never heard Dr. Brown uh, do a, a legitimate critique of any extreme charismatic where he, where he you know, truthfully pointed out the errors. He, he claims uh, frequently that he is one of the, the great critics of charismatic extremism and charismatic abuses and all of that. And it's true that in general, he will sometimes talk about how, you know, the prosperity gospel is dangerous and all of that. But if you put him face to face with any charismatic, and it doesn't matter how extreme. In fact, he's done these interviews now with both Benny Hinn and Bill Johnson. And I would classify them as probably the leading dangers at the forefront of the charismatic movement. It's hard to think of anyone who's really making an impact who's any more extreme. I mean, you'd have to go maybe to the snake handlers or something. But they're they're not influential in the way Bill Johnson and uh, Benny Hinn are. Right. And he's interviewed them both now. And and in both cases, what it seemed to me his agenda was, was to try to whitewash these guys and uh, sort of give them a backdoor exit from uh, some of their critics, some of their legitimate critics who had been pointing out the the problems and errors that in Bill Johnson's case, especially are constant. I have never heard Bill Johnson actually proclaim the gospel. Wow. He he twists it and makes false prophecies mm-hmm. and pretty much everything. I mean, I can't think of an exception. Everything I have ever heard from the man is tainted with error and in many cases, serious error Yep. and false prophecies and all of that. I mean, if there's anyone who deserves critique from another charismatic who's genuinely concerned about what's biblically sound, it would be Bill Johnson. And it seems to me that Michael's whole agenda in interviewing him was simply to whitewash those errors and try to silence the critics. Uh, My description of the interview, when somebody asked me that day, what did you think of it? I said, he went full Baghdad Bob. That's right. There are no Americans here in Baghdad. No. (laughs) That's right. No errors in this man's teaching, you know? None whatsoever. And and even some of the things that are, are... Absolutely indefensible, like uh, Jen Johnson's, uh, you know, picture of the Holy Spirit as a silly blue genie or whatever. Right. He he explains that away and excuses it. He doesn't deal with anything, no matter how egregious the error is. When when it's when it's tied to a specific charismatic individual, Michael Brown simply will not give an honest critique. No, no, I completely agree with you. It's it's as if he's incapable of offering any real valid criticism 
and he's come up with some very clever ways to um, uh, to just kind of dismiss them, you know, and make it look like those who are, you know, who are literally saying there's some serious problems with what's coming out of Bethel, that somehow we're the extremists, you know, we're, you know, we're the ones causing division in the body of Christ, and we're we're the ones who are really in danger here, you know, in danger of of blaspheming the Holy Spirit or something like that. That's right, and Michael Brown does that constantly. This is not an anomaly. This is not an exception from his rule. Uh, he's not always advocating the extremes or whatever, but whenever he deals with it, whenever he deals with any of the charismatic extremists, it is always to minimize their error or totally excuse them. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Now, w- with your permission, I'd like to walk through a couple of sound bites from the interview, but I also have some other sound bites uh, of, uh, of Bill Johnson that I think are kind of indicative and give a, a good flavor of what the problem is. And uh, one of the questions that came up in the interview that Michael Brown gave with, uh, you know, that, you know, that with uh, Bill Johnson was talking about his journey in terms of revival. And before we get into it, let, let me ask you this, okay? You know, I, I'm not a big fan of the term revival, but I've always understood revival, if we're, if we're to talk about it in, in some kind of a true sense, would be that there is, um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, pagans in mass are coming to hear uh, about the gospel of Christ. They're hearing preaching that is convicting them of their sin. They're hearing of Christ and him crucified for their sins, being called to repentance and being called to penitent faith in Christ as the mean, the only means of salvation and any hope. And um, and we can, if you were to look back in history, you could make a case that there have maybe been punctuated times in in, uh, in Western history where things like that have happened. But when I listen to Bill Johnson and Michael Brown talk about revival, that's not what they're talking about. A- a- am I wrong in saying that? No, no, you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, a great book on that is Ian Murray's book. I think it's titled Revivals and Revivalism. And he makes a distinction between genuine revivals, which are works of God, where like the first great awakening in America, where, as you said, pagans and unbelievers are are suddenly awakened with a conviction about their sin, and they come to Christ for salvation. And always in a true revival, the gospel is what's at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And that changed, that all changed in early America with uh, Charles Finney and his revivalism. And of course, the the hallmark of Finney's teaching was that uh, revival is not a work of God. It's a it's a response to uh, techniques and things that are humanly possible. You can drum up a revival. You right. can schedule a revival, and and uh, that became so deeply embedded in American evangelicalism that you had you know e- even as late as the twentieth century and to, to this day. I think some churches. But we'll put a sign out saying revival October 15th through 23rd, you know, or, or give some dates as if they've scheduled this revival. They're not talking about an awakening no. uh, that was wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. They're talking about uh, enthusiasm that was drummed up by a skilled evangelist who who uh, knows the techniques for stirring a crowd into a frenzy. And the charismatic movement itself is an outgrowth of American revivalism. Okay. It, it, it's, it's, it's got woven into the core of their theology this sort of heretical view that 
you know, uh, that, that puts all the focus on human effort and human works and human techniques. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, even even think about the word faith movement, which is a serious corruption of the gospel. The idea there is it's what what you say, not what God does, but yeah. what you say with your words. That's what's important. That's what this that's where the stress is and all of that. Right. And of course, uh, Bill Johnson has taken that, you know, exponentially to a greater degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's nobody better than him at stirring a crowd into a frenzy. Right. Uh, but so so what he's doing is revivalism, but he calls it revival. Yeah. Uh, and it's confusing to a lot of people, but it's mere revivalism. This is this is human enthusiasm uh, that can be easily stirred up and it goes away just as easily and it doesn't really ever bear any true spiritual fruit. Right. Now if I were to point in scripture to two examples of revival, okay, in the in the right biblical sense, I would point to Nineveh and the preaching of Jonah, um, where they repent in mass for their wickedness, and even Christ affirms that they will they will stand with the righteous on the day of judgment. And the other one would be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Um, you know, right. through the preaching of the Apostle Peter where he convicts them and, and basically holds them accountable for murdering Christ, and uh, you could add you could add to that perhaps uh, in Nehemiah's time when they they took the book of the law and read it and uh, b- basically big day long sessions of expository yeah, yeah. ministry yeah that revived the people. So I mean, I, I, so if we were to look at biblical examples where you know God has miraculously moved in mass, you know, to to bring people to penitence. And uh, and to forgive and absolve them of their sins, and and then they bear fruit in keeping with repentance and are devoted to the sound teaching of the word. I mean, those are those would be examples in the Bible. But you know, what, what when I look at you know in the charismatic movement, they're talking about revival. I almost feel like they're they're like surfers on their surfboards, waiting for the latest swell of the spirit to come in, so that they can ride the anointing and the glory on in and you know and you point to Toronto or Pensacola or uh, or Todd Bentley's you know Lakeland revival and that has not it doesn't look at all like any of the biblical revivals that we're talking about you're right right it's just uh it's more of a circus atmosphere and what you said is exactly the language they use. It's like surfing, and you want to catch the next wave. And that's where the expression third wave Pentecostalism came from. I think it was Peter Wagner or someone in that movement who who pictured it that exactly that way, that you have to find out what God's doing and ride the wave. And the way you find out what God is doing is you look where the big crowds are and and you know where all the enthusiasm is. And, and in fact, starting in the 90s, it went through – uh, just cycle after cycle of these fads. There was the Toronto blessing where the emphasis was on laughter. There was yeah. the Pensacola outpouring, which Michael Brown was a big part of, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, you, you had not only the laughter but also, you know, other strange phenomena. And then Todd Bentley took it to a to a whole different level with, uh, uh, you know, his sort of. It was like a revival for bikers or something. I don't know. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so I, I wanted to kind of lay the track here so we can you know, we can see when they're talking about revival, they're not talking about the biblical definition or even explanation of what we would think revival ought to be. It's something completely different. But here's here's the portion of the uh, of the interview where Michael Brown is questioning him regarding his history. Uh, in in revival and and see what if we can make heads or tails of this. 
What about your own journey in terms of revival and the presence of God? Uh, what happened in your own life to get you where you are today? Uh, you know, I, in 1987, I attended a conference uh, with John Wimber in Anaheim. And I heard things that I had taught for the previous couple of years, but he had fruit for what he believed, and I just had theology. And I went home disturbed, actually, um, because there wasn't the fruit in my life that there wasn't his. And I realized I needed to kind of put a demand on what I believed and not just wait for it to happen around me, but to actually pursue and take risk. And so we did. And within a week or so, we started seeing things we had never seen before. That started it. I went to Toronto in 1995, and I didn't have any dramatic experience, but I I, I saw, I sensed the same anointing and presence that uh, uh, that we had been experiencing in recent years. I went to Pensacola in '96. Very different expression, but same anointing. And uh, I just came home and said, Lord, I, I just give you my my life to demonstrate what you're doing in the earth, and and I just I commit myself to to live for this purpose, to display your wonders uh, in the earth. And uh... All right. So um, Toronto and Pensacola are held up as somehow examples of revival and the work of the Holy Spirit. But he comes away thinking that the purpose of his life is to demonstrate God's wonders. I thought the job of the church is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. What is this? Yeah, and and notice he talks about how he saw things he'd never seen before. That's the goal of these cycles of various charismatic fads. Each one is a little more bizarre than the previous one, you know. The Toronto Blessing was, you know, strange and, and odd and all of that. By the time you get to Todd Bentley, he's punching people in the stomach, you know. Yeah. The specialty at Bill Johnson's church is they have several of them, but they uh, – you know, they have gold dust coming from the ceiling and stuff like that. Very easy phenomena to fake. If you read their literature, they actually claim they have a the dead raising team that goes out and, you know, claims they can raise the dead. But which, they haven't raised anybody. You know, well, actually, they claim that they've, they've seen a few resurrections. But when they describe it, it's obvious that uh, they're they're really stretching it. And it, it's it's sad and a shame because they will actually pick out people who recently had loved ones die and offer to raise their loved ones from the dead. And, of course, they can't deliver on that promise. They also had a group of young people who claimed they had walked on water. And, I, I mean, my response to that was that is patently a lie because you're talking about high school kids who always have their cell phones with them. Right. If any one of them had ever walked on water, there'd be a video on YouTube. Yeah, there would. Yeah, that's the thing is, um, you know, I, I, I've recently entitled this phenomenon that I hear in the uh, charismatic movements where, the, you know, they're constantly telling these tall tales. You know, these are akin to the legends of Pecos Bill and and uh, Paul Bunyan and stuff like that. And it's always fascinating to me. They don't give names. They don't have medical records. Um, you know, they don't have actual video of the person being healed or are the tumor disappearing uh, my favorite are the weight loss miracles you know I, I could really use one of those but um 
You know, the, the idea is, is, you know, it's like you, they, they don't show somebody who shows up to church, you know, wearing 2XL and leaving and not able to fit into their clothes, you know, or anything <laughs> like that. You know, it's just but they always tell these tall tale stories. Oh, yeah, I, I saw this miracle and that miracle. And, the, and, they, and it's just like they're and, and none of these miracles ever lead to somebody saying, oh, my goodness, I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I need to repent, you know, or anything like that, you know. Right. Well, they don't even talk about sin and repentance in any in any serious and biblical fashion. Uh, it's all about the phenomena, and, and, and it, it's very man centered. It points to the miracle worker or the speaker or yeah. whatever, and they've got a stable of them there at Bethel Reading. Oh, yeah. uh, weird, weird people, weird speakers, and it, and it seems like there's a contest among them to see who can say the most bizarre thing, and and they always get an appreciative sort of noise from the crowd it's not exactly an amen but usually applause and lots of noise and uh, it's like then that just sets them loose to tell bigger and bigger tales right and like like you said it, it there, there's never any proof there's never any uh, factual uh, uh, evidence that goes along with it which is in contrast to what scripture does even with the resurrection of Christ when Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15 he starts to name the eyewitnesses living eyewitnesses yep. people you could have gone and checked with you know and there are hundreds of them and um you know he's not afraid to give those witnesses uh, the the walking on water tales are stuff that always happened in the backwoods where only a few people saw it, but they all agree. Yeah. And, it, it uh, happened. and it nobody, happened, man. but nobody thought to yank out their uh, cell phone and actually videotape this. Right. They were also claiming they could walk through walls like the glorified Christ, just pass through solid walls. R right. So, so, strange claims to make. Uh, and if you had that gift, if you had that ability, it would seem to be an easy thing to demonstrate. The same thing with a dead raising team. Uh, you know, if they claim they have that ability and they've actually seen it happen, it would be pretty easy to set that up so that you could document the fact. But of course, that's not going to happen. No, and I don't think that's what they're about. I, uh, you know, they, they, they want to continue to point to themselves. It's always right, fascinating to me. You listen to a charismatic sermon. They go on for an hour and 15 minutes talking about themselves, their stories. They sound like my grandparents when they used to come over for Christmas. You know, they, when they first arrived, you know, the first two days were them getting you up to speed on all the things that had happened in their life since the last time they saw you. And you feel like you can't get a word in edgewise, you know. Right. Well, hey, you do a great job uh, uh, critiquing those sermons. I listen to, uh, you know, fighting for the faith all the time. And my favorite part is when you uh, – analyze those sermons with uh, with all the, uh, you know, what do you call it, exemesis or... Uh, yeah, Narsa uh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> I, wanna, I want you to hear another thing, and that is, is that in the interview, uh, they, uh, Michael Brown was talking about how they've sustained revival at, uh, at Bethel. Uh, he, here's the next bite. But, but you've, you've been able... To see something sustained at, at Bethel, you may have had certain, uh, especially intense times there of the moving of the Spirit uh, in the early days, but there's been something sustained, people regularly coming to faith, people regularly being touched by the Spirit, uh, people encountering the goodness and love of God, manifestations of the Spirit. What would you say is the key to sustaining this over the years? Um. 
Now listen to this answer. The theology is abhorrent. So what's the key to sustaining these intense encounters with the Spirit? Listen to this. Well, you know, the Scripture says that uh, God lit the fire on the altars, but the priest kept it burning. And uh, when the Lord touched me in 1987, that move of God would come and go over the next seven years. And I didn't realize it was the priest's responsibility to keep the fire burning. Mm. And so after he touched me in 95, I just purposed in my heart, I would try to discover what that looked like. And uh, mixing metaphors now, uh, fire always falls on sacrifice. So my whole point to our, our congregation, our people, is... Uh, is be the offering, be the sacrifice, be the person that the fire of God falls on, that touch of God falls on, so that we that we continue to burn with this passion. I I can't hype it, and I'm I'm not a person of. All right, you got you got the so, be the sacrifice that God can keep burning. Yeah, well, it epitomizes uh, what we've been saying about how how this is invariably man centered. It always points. Uh, away from Christ, away from the power of God, which is where they start, but then towards the individual. This is now my doing. It's something I do. It's uh, the glory goes to me, at least to a certain degree. And that's the that's the effect of of uh, this kind of theology. It's extremely man centered and self-glorifying and and deliberately not honoring to Christ. You just don't hear them talking about the glory of Christ and uh, uh, or or highlighting the gospel in any way. I mean, he's, he says nothing about the gospel in that entire interview. Yeah, no, it, what's fascinating to me <clears throat> is that uh, Michael Brown either doesn't know his Bible or he's completely biblically obtuse. I mean, there is no biblical doctrine that says that in order to sustain intense uh, manifestations of the Spirit, that somebody must be a worthy sacrifice, that, and it's the job of the priest to keep the fire burning. Um, there is, that is not a biblical doctrine. That is not something you can go back to in the writings of the Church Fathers and see as any kind of an orthodox statement of, uh, of Christian doctrine. It's not biblical I mean, right there, it, during the interview, Bill Johnson literally twisted God's word, ripped a couple of sentences or phrases out of context, and poured a completely different theology into it, it right in front of Michael Brown's eyes, and he didn't even bat, a lash, bite an, bat an eyelash. In fact, he kind of went, whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah. Well, there's an yeah, insight. Well, in fact, he acknowledges that he was mixing metaphors there, and he, and he did badly because he says the fire always falls on the sacrifice. No, it doesn't. There are only one or two places in Scripture where fire comes from heaven to consume the sacrifice. In Elijah's case, which is perhaps the most famous incident of that, uh, Elijah did everything he could to demonstrate that he is not the one making this fire burn. Right. He doused the sacrifice with seawater, mm-hmm. barrels of it, yep. and then called down fire and it was god who sent the fire and god who and it was such a fire that it, it, it burned up everything instantly you know it it, uh, it it's like the opposite lesson of what bill johnson is trying to draw from it there this was to prove that this was all of god that was that was elijah's whole point this is god doing it and you can't deny that because yep. he doused it with water and all of that bill johnson saying no 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 the fire always falls on the uh, on the sacrifice, which again isn't consistent throughout Scripture. Normally, right, it was the priest's responsibility to start the fire, keep the fire going, and offer the sacrifices. But when, 
in those cases where the the point was this is something God is doing, uh, it wasn't it wasn't any human's responsibility to help God. Right. And, and, and so, that's that's what I think is so offensive about all of this. Bottom line is what he's saying is if you want God to work in your life, you have to help him. Yeah. God helps those who help themselves. Yeah. And that's that's a message that is 180 degrees contrary to the gospel. Yeah. And it's it's a little more crass than that. I mean, the key to sustaining perpetual revival is to well, to do what we do at Bethel. We, we've got it right. We, we, we are the right sacrifices that God always pours his fire down on. I mean, it just, it just is so spiritually arrogant, it's beyond belief, you know. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with Christ. That's the bizarre part of it. All right, now, I, okay, so here was their discussion on the topic of grave-sucking. And what I find fascinating about this is that the claims that Bethel were, were involved in this type of thing come from Benny Johnson's Instagram uh, account and as well as videos put up by Bethelites on on social media. You know, yeah, it, this this was uh, my favorite part of the interview. All right, so let's let's watching let's, him let's, tap dance around this. Yeah, we're we're gonna find a way to magically just ignore all of the evidence that this is actually as a result of Bethel's behavior and teaching on social media. But uh, here we go. Bill, I, I want to ask you one other question that's come up a lot, and people ask me to ask you about it. I, I want to read something that your associate colleague for many years, Chris Vallotton, wrote. Uh, he said, I've been asked what I think about grave sucking several times lately. It's May nineteenth, two 2015, he wrote this. Personally, I'd never heard the phrase before a couple of months ago. I guess they're asking if I believe you can receive some dead person's anointing by laying on their grave. So he says he thinks it came from Second Kings 13, where bones of a dead man, a dead man was thrown on the bones of Elisha, uh, and and the person uh, revived and stood up to his feet. And uh, he says this: it's been an inside joke among our Bethel team for years. I really thought it was funny until some folks took it seriously. I mean, if God wanted us to receive some kind of impartation from people who have already passed, then certainly we would have some New Testament examples or instruction on it. Furthermore, if you could receive some gift from people after they died, then why did Joseph want Jacob to lay hands on his sons before he passed that they could just as easily have received an impartation at his funeral? I think the Elisha story was never meant to be repeated, as there are no other accounts of it in the Bible. The Scriptures need to be the foundation in which we base all of our experiences. Chris writes, we are a radical group of revivalists who want to be on the cutting edge of everything God has for us, but it's really important in our zeal for God we don't become spiritually weird. I love it when Jesus' people boldly go where few have dared to tread, yet it's also important that we learn from our mistakes. I have done and said some pretty stupid things in the name of God over the years. I regret every one of them. Personally, I think we should take flowers to the graves of our loved ones, pay our respects, and leave it at that. Uh, that's your colleague, Chris. So, so Bill, uh, I apologize for having to ask some of the questions, but they come up so much, and I want to remove any misunderstanding so people can find out what you really have to say. So sure. do, you, do you endorse, preach, teach, encourage the practice of going to the, the graves of deceased men and women of God to try to suck the anointing uh, out of the no. earth? Absolutely not. <laughs> we don't, goodness, we don't talk to the dead. We don't look for impartation from the dead. We don't worship the dead. But I, I will go to, you know, I've gone to Charles Finney's gravesite, and I'll pray, God, do in our, in our country what you did through him, and I'll... 
I yes. use it as a as a point of faith to. I, I feel like we are supposed to honor. I don't know that you need to go to a gravesite, but um, but I I have gone. I've gone to Evan Roberts and I've prayed there. God, do what you did in Wales. Do it again. Release it all over the earth. And so I, I use it as a you know as a point of reminder of how God uh, used somebody in the past, uh, but not to receive from them, but just as a just you know, it's just uh, like like a postcard or something to remind you of some other place. And so I, I, I do. I pray into it, and I say, God, please release that again. And we're we're actually uh, building a, a library museum. Now I'll stop there. So I mean, I mean, just totally dismissing it. Um, Valentin came dangerously close to actually confessing they had something to do with the fact that this was going around, um, but. The fact is, is that on websites, and you know, I've got copies of these myself, and I'll post a link to a website that's actually posted a bunch of them. Well, there are photographs of Benny Johnson on her Instagram, lying on the grave of like C.S. Lewis, hugging the tombstone of Finney. I mean, and 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 in the comments, you know, it, the people are saying, "Oh, get some of that for me too," you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, it, I mean, I've. You know, I've visited cemeteries on several occasions, and I have yet to lie on somebody's grave. You, you know what I'm saying? And so this this concept of grave sucking, and then there's video, full blown video of Bethelites from their school of prophecy, you know, it, claiming that they can receive these anointings from these graves, and and yet they don't. They didn't acknowledge that the reason why there's this thing going around talking about grave sucking is because of what they've done. And what Benny Johnson has done, they you know, but Valentin came really close to saying our mistakes. So it's like they're trying to figure out how to sweep this under the carpet without ever having to say we were wrong. We need to repent. This is a false doctrine. Don't believe it. And you know, and you know what we and, and we're the ones at fault for starting this. Yeah, and you know, for for a while there, it was all over social media and the internet. It was a it was clearly a fad that had grown up in and around Bethel, and and Benny Johnson herself was was one of the people who really encouraged it. Yep. Uh, so they're not they're not totally being honest about uh, about all this. It wasn't a joke. He said originally it was a joke, and then he realized people were taking it seriously. It wasn't a joke, uh, and. I don't know how much of that stuff is still online, but it was very worrisome because it really is a kind of necromancy. Yeah. I mean, it has everything in common with, uh, you know, the superstitious practices of, uh, you know, trying to communicate with the dead. It's very much like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, there's no biblical the, – the, it's really a stretch to go to the bones of Elisha. Uh, there is no other – Biblical. In fact, everything Scripture has to say about our uh, fellowship with the dead goes against this kind of, um, you know. Right, but they're they're always they're always seeking some special anointing or someone's mantle. You know, I'm going to go to Catherine Kuhlman's grave so that I can I can get Catherine Kuhlman's mantle. Oh no, Benny Hinn got there first, and he got Catherine Kuhlman's mantle. What are we supposed to do? You know, you know, and, and maybe there's some leftover mantelage, you know, sitting around her graveside or something. It's, it's the, it, it, the, none of this is taught in Scripture, and their practice showed something 
about their theology. They would not have done these things if there wasn't an underlying belief regarding, you know, these anointings and mantles and things like that, which, you know, they didn't, and Michael Brown didn't ask any questions along those lines that could have led to any biblical clarification. It was as if he softballed it and, you know, leading off with Chris Vallotton's statement so that he can give basically some cover room for Bill Johnson to kind of maneuver behind and make it look like, oh, yeah, I don't know what that was. That's just silly. That was a joke. Yeah, and, and to be clear for those, your, your listeners who may not know the background, on that is exactly what Benny Hinn claims, that he got Catherine Coleman's anointing. And uh, I when I first saw this, I suspected that this had roots in – Benny Hinn's claim that other people were trying to get the anointing of, you know, other well-known charismatics or, uh, you know, Charles Finney or whoever. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's let's take a listen to another piece of this. And this is the uh, the sneaky blue genie, um, you know, (laughs) you know, finding a way to sweep that under the carpet, too. And it's fascinating to me that they they never really actually come right out and 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 say we've taught false doctrine and we've repented. Um, They always find some, you know, whimsical way of just kind of brushing this aside, you know. Yeah. And this in particular is something they need to own. Jen Johnson has has done this same speech in multiple venues. You just look on uh, YouTube. You can find her in several different places in different outfits. And she has pretty much the same spiel she does every time about the Holy Spirit being a sneaky blue genie and all of that stuff. And it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me uh, to hear hear her do this because it's it's blasphemous in the first place. But just the way she does it is annoying. Yeah, but the way they, they dismiss it is more like political spin control. So that's exactly what it is. It's like I said, this is this is Baghdad Bob here. Yeah. All right. Let's let's listen in. Uh, Jen Johnson. She's she's talking, and uh, she she's describing the Holy Spirit and likens the Holy Spirit to a sneaky blue genie. Now, obviously, to, to people who don't know you, that's going to further confirm that you guys are weird and into all this, you know, spiritual orbs and communicating with angels and the Holy Spirit's like a sneaky blue, blue genie. Now, uh, again, you don't have to necessarily defend or explain what she said but if you think you know what she meant maybe you could explain it well I, you know I'm, first of all I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to defend because that's language I wouldn't use uh, but uh, um, she she talks about the Holy Spirit being uh, sneaky and uh, and he is he is mysterious and uh, and I think that's accurate. I wouldn't use that terminology, and she doesn't use it anymore. She hasn't for years because while it was honest on her part to try to explain what she was experiencing with God, which is very very real and genuine, the language that was used uh, she would never use again because it 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 caused such controversy in a wrong sense. We don't mind controversy, but. But uh, in, in a way that might misrepresent the Lord, and uh, she doesn't want to do that. I, I don't want to do that. So, but she, yeah, she's used descriptions like that for sure. I've seen them, and uh, uh, and uh, and have had good conversation with her about it. And when I actually talked with her uh, just a couple years ago, uh, she said, "Yeah," she said, "I use I quit using that analogy. Uh, well, I don't know four or five years earlier, and so something like that. So yeah, that's that's true. We've we have sometimes in our 
somewhat humorous culture have have crossed the line, uh, although I think mostly it's well-intended. In fact, in her case, I know it is. Um, sometimes we just, you know, we, we just didn't do as good as we thought we, we did. And that would be one of the occasions. Just didn't do as well as we thought we did. And notice she was explaining what she was experiencing rather than actually engaging in any kind of biblical teaching as to what God has revealed about the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Yeah, the problem is it, what she said was blasphemous. It's not just didn't do as good as we should have. It's It was, it was a, a, a blasphemous way of uh, describing the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was doing it to be funny. And he makes it sound like, oh, she may have said these things in private conversation and it came to my attention later. She said it in meetings where he put her front and center on the stage and invited her to speak, and she did it. And then they took the video of that and put it on the internet, internet in in multiple formats. It wasn't just one time that she did this. Yeah. That was her go-to speech for a couple of years. She would do it, I suppose, everywhere she spoke because there's so many different versions of it on on uh, YouTube uh, and and. You know, if if that were my material and I said something egregiously wrong and came to admit that it was it was wrong, I'd I'd take it off the internet instead of leaving it out there. This is the lamest sort of backing away from something that's indefensible that I can imagine. I don't know what he could have done to make his admission that they've not done everything well. Any more vanilla than it was. Right. And the underlying problem is that, um, you know, let's pretend for a second that uh, Jen Johnson is actually qualified to be a teacher in Christ's church and to teach men, you know, during sermon time and stuff like that. We'll just ignore that, you know, that little caveat for a second, but just pretend that she's actually qualified. But, you know, she has the training uh, to properly exegete a biblical text and things like that. Um, she wasn't engaging in exegesis. She was literally engaging in theology based upon her experience. And here's the thing. That's the problem. And what we're going to hear in just a second, this problem still exists. And Bill Johnson is about to engage in the very thing that, that Jen Johnson engaged in to come up with the sneaky blue genie theology He's going to do basically just theologizing from his experience rather than from a biblical text. Yeah, one other thing about that. When when she said the Holy Spirit is blue, she was insistent on that. It wasn't it wasn't just that wasn't a metaphor, it wasn't merely a, a slip of the tongue or whatever. She was insistent that the Holy Spirit is blue, as if she'd seen him with her own eyes and and he's blue. <laughs> it it's so bizarre. It's just so outrageously bizarre. I, what amazes me about the whole thing is that it took, he said, four years since she's taught that. It took four years for another charismatic to actually ask for clarification or correction on that. Right. And, and it sounded like what, the, the reason why they shifted away from it is because it was creating a negative type of controversy, the kind that they didn't really want to engage in. You know. Yeah, they don't like controversy. No, 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 no. They don't want to have to explain what it is that they're up to, you know, from any kind of a biblical point of view. Um, all right, let's take a listen to um, uh, to 
Bill Johnson now is going to talk about his book. And, uh, you, you know, I know that you've uh, spent a lot of time in your career working on book manuscripts and editing uh, manuscripts for John MacArthur and maybe for even others. Um, has John MacArthur ever come to you and said, Phil, listen, my next book, I need to write this on this topic, and here's the reason why that we'll let Bill Johnson explain. My guest, Pastor Bill Johnson, author of the new book, God is Good. Bill, you work hard on getting this out. You've written a number of books. They're bestsellers. They've gone around the world. You work really hard on this. Why, why are you so burdened to get this message out? Well, to, to be honest, I, I uh, after my dad died, I had a continuing encounter with the Lord uh, about his goodness, and uh, and I've learned more in my disappointment and loss about his goodness than than any season of great breakthrough. And I was in a pastor's prayer meeting um, some years ago, and and I felt like the Lord just spoke to me, actually very very clearly, internal audible voice kind of thing, where He just said, "I want you to write about my goodness." And I had never had Him give me a direction like that before. He's always you know, if I have a, a burden in my heart to write about something, I speak about it, and he'll confirm it. You know, he'll give me a direction in the process. But this time, he actually brought it up. I'd never had that happen before, so I, I, I began to just ponder what I could write about. You know, as it is, I, probably all books are incomplete, but, you know, I live with the awareness that this is just barely scratching the surface on every possible area, but it's at least an introduction from my perspective of what the goodness of God looks like. But I wrote it because I, I really felt strong. He, he required that of me. All right. So God has required Bill Johnson to write this book. Yeah, he's claiming inspiration there. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what makes this so difficult are all the charismatic code words. Notice in the clips you've played so far, he said the Lord touched him. Yeah. W what does that mean? I... I Clearly, he's not. Well, maybe it's not that clear, but I don't think he means that in a literal sense that he, he got a physical touch from the Lord. But I don't know what he's talking about or how he would describe it. He doesn't bother to because you don't need to in the charismatic world. You, you use an expression like that or anointing or uh, he says he had an ongoing encounter with the Lord. Again, I, I don't I don't know what that means. I mean, I have an ongoing encounter with the Lord through his word, yep. but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Uh, he's he's suggesting that somehow he got plugged into God in a way that he heard what he calls an internal audible voice. Now, that's an oxymoron. Is it internal, like he's hearing it in his head, mm -hmm. or is it really audible that he's hearing it through his ears? Because if it's audible, it's not internal, yeah. you know, unless it's coming from a vibration in his septum or something. And if that's the case, it's not from God. It's from his own imagination. And see, that's the problem. It's that that is what all of these charismatic revelations are. They're they're products of an, an over fertile and and uh, over overworked imagination. And that's why so many of them are wrong. The, the prophetic stuff is almost always wrong. The stuff that, uh, you know, pretends to predict the future. They just never get it right. Yeah. Uh, and if they do, it's it's an infinitesimal fraction of the time that, you know, it's like predicting how the coin's going to flip. You can do that sometimes, but you can't be totally accurate. And scripture says 
if you're not totally accurate, if it's not 100 percent accurate, then you're not you're not supposed to regard that person as a prophet. And that's what all this boils down to. He is a demonstrably false prophet. He has made false prophecies. And so I don't believe him and I'm under no obligation to believe him biblically when he says he got a word from the Lord on this, that he heard an audible internal voice, whatever that would be. Right. He's he's. He's not telling the truth there. He's he's describing perhaps something that took place in his imagination. Maybe he really believes it, but I kind of doubt that even because you can't be wrong as often as he's wrong and and still hold to the belief that this is God telling you this. Right. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of my conversation with Bill Johnson regarding Bill Johnson and his appearance on Michael Brown's program. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Other 
tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out With People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church. Cause they're stupid, cause they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Noble's brand new Techno Praise album entitled More Like Jesus. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Bill Johnson is a false prophet and a twister of God's word. And the reason for that is simple, because he is. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you in the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew... You get to pick your rank in our crew. There's four ranks. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey, and that's $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then from there, Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. It helps us have a solid financial you know, footing and foundation so that we can budget properly, pay our expenses, plan our next exploits and things like that. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of my conversation with Phil Johnson recorded earlier regarding, um, well, Michael Brown's uh, spin control to help uh, whitewash uh, the false teachings and false prophecies and false manifestations of the spirit of uh, a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous Bible twister and heretic, Bill Johnson. Here we go. Um, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of the sermon review I gave, uh, you know, a few months back of a William Branham sermon. And in the Branham sermon, he literally basically said that if somebody denied that the Holy Spirit was working through him, that that person was not saved. And, you know, and I think Branham kind of hung it out there. I mean, which kind of tells you what type of person he was. But uh, here, here's the thing. I I think this kind of serves a function within the charismatic movement. The person said, oh, I, I had this ongoing uh, encounter, you know, continued encounter with the Spirit, and he spoke to me via internal audible voice. So that the next thing that you say, the next, the next thing you say has God's stamp of approval and imprimatur behind it. And, of course, you know, I basically sit there and say, you know, really, okay, so if I don't believe that this is, God speaking to you, am I going to hell? You know, am am, am I duty-bound to add this to my Bible, you know, and things like that? But my question is then always, because I can easily demonstrate that what comes next is a flat-out twisting of God's Word. It's so, like, hermeneutically obvious that if you're really hearing from God, my question is, why isn't God the Holy Spirit saying to you, knock it off? You know, if you're going to be, you know, I'm giving you this direct revelation. You got to make sure you handle my word properly, too. You know, but they, they never really do that. Right. And, you know, that's not a minor point in Scripture. That's that's throughout Scripture. You just don't play games with the word of God like that. And you don't say, thus says the Lord, unless the Lord actually said it. Yeah. And the, that's a serious sin. I mean, that's a sin really worse than most of the carnal sins that we that we campaign against right uh to deliberately uh misrepresent what god has said to say god said this to me when in fact god didn't say it and you don't have any reason to think god said it you're just trying to puff yourself up and portray yourself as a prophet and charismatics do that all the time you mentioned william branham he's one of the worst of the worst the guy was an alcoholic yeah and yet he's a charismatic icon. There are to this day charismatics who think he was one of the greatest prophets ever. You know, Paul Cain was 
one of his disciples, and he was an alcoholic as well. Yeah. So, so this often goes hand in hand with a life of uh, secret sin, and yeah. and I don't know how to explain that other than that I think this is one of the ways uh, these people compensate for a damaged conscience. You, you, you say you, you yeah. pretend to have a direct line with God, even maybe convince yourself that you do, that everything you hear in your imagination is God talking to you, and uh, you, you can then somehow justify a profligate life. Yeah, yeah I've I got to tell you, in my years of talking with people coming out of the charismatic movement, and even my time in the charismatic movement, I, I saw some of the most egregious things, and, um, you know, all done in the name of God. And the people coming out of the charismatic movement that I'm talking to, same thing. I mean, the, the most flagrant and, egreg- and gross sins are all, you know, shuffled under the carpet in the name of I'm receiving direct revelation from God. But, um, you know, fascinating that you would bring that up. But uh, let, let me kind of give you an, an example of what I would consider like a quintessential way in which Bill Johnson just makes up theology. He, he, you know, and, and he, he, what's funny is, is that Michael Brown kind of noted the fact, well, there's not, I mean, the fact that there's not thousands of, you know, examples of Bill Johnson twisting scripture and teaching false doctrine is proof that he's really on the level. It's like, have I mean, listening to a Bill Johnson sermon is is ugh, like beating your head against a wall because he constantly is pontificating and making just bizarre statements. The whole sermon is full filled with this kind of stuff. And I would just point Michael Brown to the archives of Fighting for the Faith. We've been covering Bill Johnson's twisting of Scripture and bizarre claims really since the beginning of the program almost ten years ago. You know, we've, we've yeah. It, it's interesting that the day before uh, this interview with Michael Brown came out. I had been watching a, uh, a Bill Johnson sermon on the sovereignty of God. Uh, I, I'd read a quotation from him, and I wanted to find the source of it, uh, where he says, uh, yes, God's in charge, but he's not in control, he says. He's ceded control to, you know, human free will and all that. And uh, seriously, you can you can listen to that entire sermon and he is twisting the truth of Scripture, but it would be hard to demonstrate that he's twisting Scripture because he never refers to Scripture. Right. It, he just doesn't deal with it. It's all the musings of his own mind. And he walks around like some kind of, you know, charismatic Fred Rogers, this avuncular style that, yeah. uh, that uh, you know, frankly, I don't see why it doesn't put people to sleep. But, uh, but it obviously doesn't because he – cooks up these fantasies and and I think to some degree makes up his theology as he's going. Yeah, no, and, I, I think he does it on the fly. I'm surprised he hasn't set up like a little platform for himself on Mount Shasta and requires his disciples to climb up to hear him pontificate while he sits in the lotus position. I mean, because that's really what – this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Let me give you an example and see if yeah, – when- Seriously, by the way, I think that's an apt comparison. I think what he's doing is really no different from what, you know, Eastern mystics do, these gurus who who spout profound sounding things. He's learned how to use language that sounds mysterious because it's ambiguous. Right. And people somehow think that ambiguity makes it deep. If I can't understand it, it must be deep. If I don't know what he's getting at, it must be deep, you know. Right. And uh, that fools a lot of people, a lot of foolish people. Yeah. Now, here, here's, a, here I think, a salient example of that. See if you can make heads or tails of this. 
says, lift up your heads, O you gates. In Isaiah 60, gates were praise. In Revelation, the gates were made out of pearls. Pearls are formed through irritation. The gates of praise are formed in our life when we go against circumstances and glorify Jesus anyway. Something is shaped in us. So here's this unusual picture. It says, lift up your heads. The lifting of the head has everything in the world to do with our countenance. The Bible says he's the glory and the lifter of our head. Lifting of the head is not um, to give us some kind of a psychological edge. Lifting of the head changes what we see. Jesus wanted his disciples to see the harvest fields. And so he told them, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white under harvest. Lift up. Look up before you look down and you'll see things differently. There's something about changing the countenance, lifting our heads, lifting our, our, our it's, a, it's a look of anticipation where we set our eyes on the Lord. And there's something about setting the eyes of our heart on heavenly things in attitude, in countenance, in conduct. So here's this unusual passage. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and the king of glory will come in. The word gate this subject of gate, I should say, in the Psalms, God says the gates of Zion are his eternal dwelling place. He lives in a gate. That makes no sense unless you see gate as praise and he inhabits the praises of his people. Do you see the connections here? So this invitation is like this. Lift up your countenance before you get the answer you need. You're not lifting your countenance because you got the breakthrough. You're lifting your countenance and you're giving him thanks and praise. In spite of circumstances, you're willing to let the gate be formed in you that says, I will praise him continuously regardless of circumstances. And so we lift up the countenance as a lifestyle of anticipation of grace. And in that place, we give him praise. And what does it say? That is the gate that he comes through. Can you diagram those sentences? No, and I thought he was, I, I thought it's unfortunate that he didn't develop the uh, pearls are formed by irritation more than he did. <laughs> that would have explained maybe his, his preaching style. He's trying to irritate these people. So, <laughs> so they'll produce so that, pearls. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I Honestly, some of that was so far-fetched that it would be difficult to parody, really. I yeah. mean, with a creative mind like that, he ought to be writing for the Babylon Bee. Yeah, yeah, I think he would do very well there. Uh, because if he if he wasn't serious, that would be really funny, what he just said. But he's serious, and that makes it tragic and sad and, and really dangerous. Because he's telling people, this is what Scripture teaches, and he's bypassing the actual meaning of those texts. Right, exactly. He's not engaging in exegesis in any sense of the word. And what he is doing is it's a, it's a form of wordplay, you know, that, that basically creates this smokescreen of nonsense. And he, the way he handles himself, it's like he knows exactly, you know, the, the, the deep meaning of what it is that he's talking about. And you're sitting there going, I don't get it. And it's like, it's like the emperor's new clothes. 
you know, everyone's sitting there going, oh, that's the most amazing clothes ever. You look up. You look amazing. You look marvelous. And then some kid cries out. It's like the, the king is naked. He's not wearing nothing, you know, and, and that's exactly what's going on here. Everyone's sitting there fawning over his words and he hasn't said a thing. No, and they think it's really deep because they look at that and say, I would never have gotten that out of that passage. He's seeing things I would never have seen. And they think that's proof that it's really profound when, in fact, he's seeing stuff that nobody would ever see there because it's not there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's he is butchering the word of God. And there's a classic example of how he twists the word of God. And the result isn't always heretical. But it's nevertheless extremely dangerous. I mean, nothing he said there is going to cost anybody their eternal soul. But by teaching people to mishandle Scripture that way, he is putting them in a dangerous place where they're they're going to miss the true meaning of Scripture and start looking for these ambiguous, mystical, hidden meanings. It's a kind of Gnosticism. Right. He's claiming to have knowledge, to see things in Scripture that – you, you can't see without some kind of special anointing, right? which is exactly what he claims for himself. Yeah, I'd like to, that's, I'd like to see him point, I'd like to see him point to a good scholarly commentary that it, it, that where you know somebody who's worked in the original languages um, you know has a firm grasp of systematic theology and historical uh, you know a, a grasp of orthodoxy and even how the church has understood these passages in the past. Um, you know, say, oh, yeah, that's exactly – Bill Johnson's just saying the same thing the church has been saying all along. I mean, that's impossible because what he said right, make, isn't even lucid. You make a great point because the point you're actually making there is you don't get ideas like that from serious Bible study. No. You, you can't study the Bible seriously and come up with that kind of stream of consciousness ambiguity. Yep. He's he is He's a classic – uh, false prophet and scripture twister. Yep. Let me give you one last example, and this is a shorter, uh, s- shorter soundbite. But he says something at the end of this thing that I think is, you know, literally bordering into um, into heresy territory. But I'll, I'll let uh, Bill Johnson explain. I mean, you know, God and the devil are not at war with each other. Uh, the devil doesn't stand a chance. Uh, that's that's not a war. That's not a contest. I mean, the Lord all he has to do is blink and poof, you know. The devil's a crispy critter. There's no, there's no contest. There's, there's no contest there whatsoever. It's not as though that God is perfect good and the devil is perfect evil and there's this yin and yang war. That's not true. God is God, period. The devil and powers of darkness were defeated through a man... Jesus, the Son of God, who became a man and defeated him on our our behalf because we missed our chance. That is the truth. So apparently Jesus defeated the devil on our behalf because we missed our chance to defeat the devil ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that's just crazy. That's... uh, That that contradicts what Scripture teaches. Yeah, flat out. Christ... Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, there's no other way to describe it other than war. And Satan is our enemy and the accuser of the brethren. He, he, it, it, we war not against flesh and blood, mm-hmm. but against principalities and powers. That's demonic spirits, and that certainly includes 
uh, the devil who is who is the captain of the guard as far as they are concerned. Right. And then you look at the book of uh, Daniel, uh, Michael's fight with the devil himself. I mean, you know, it, it, this or the prince of Persia. Sorry. Yeah. But you get the idea. There's some there's something really amiss here. He's not really interested in exegeting biblical passages and following what Jesus has commanded. And, and here's what I mean. The Great Commission, Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Make disciples, these are learners, of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that I have commanded. And you, and you look in the book of Acts, at chapter 2, right after the great day of Pentecost, it literally talks about the new disciples devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. You know, Bethel Church has, I've never seen anything from Bethel Church in the sermons that I've reviewed and, you know, continue to, like, sample Oh, you know, week in and week out, that shows that they are interested at all in you know in taking seriously the apostolic doctrine of the New Testament, understanding the Old Testament in light of the New, and preaching and teaching what the church has always historically believed, taught, and confessed. This is you know, Christianity is the faith once delivered to the saints. The Christianity that's being preached by Bill Johnson and his contemporaries and his colleagues there at uh, Bethel sounds nothing like historic biblical Christian orthodoxy at all. Right. In fact, they're focused on, you know, these phenomena, the bizarre things and all that. They have a school there to teach people how to how to work miracles. Yeah. And uh, that's where the focus is. It's not on Christ. Yeah. I think they got a Jedi training academy there rather than a discipling outfit. But that's a different story altogether. But I think you get the point. So, um, you know, to kind of wrap this up, I mean, I, I got to admit that um, I was uh, quite underwhelmed by um, Michael Brown's softballs and handling of uh, Bill Johnson with kit gloves and actually working with him to kind of do spin damage control rather than uh, engage him in a substantive uh, conversation regarding his teaching, his Bible handling, his claims regarding the supernatural, regarding direct revelation. I mean, he, in fact, what Bill Johnson did on Michael Brown's program was just trot all this stuff out, and Michael Brown just gave him the platform and never challenged him on it. Well, it was clear from the beginning of the interview that that was the point. Yeah. This was not going to seriously challenge Bill Johnson, but it was going to give him an opportunity to explain away what the critics objected to. And that's exactly what he did. He picked out three or four of the most uh, sort of the the most common uh, things that Bethel has been criticized for. And he he softballed it. He he or, or or even in some cases, it was as if Michael himself was the one denying that this is really a serious problem. Yeah. The other thing that was uh, fascinatingly missing from the conversation was any substantive attempt to address the, uh, the claims regarding uh, Bill Johnson's involvement in the New Apostolic Reformation. Um, and it, it, Christianity Today, the interview that, uh, that Bill Johnson gave with them earlier in the year, he basically feigned ignorance when it came, came to the NAR. And, uh, you know, we busted his chops on fighting for the faith and demonstrated he can't do that because uh, at uh, Todd Bentley's um, commissioning service, it was C. Peter Wagner who introduced Bill Johnson as a living apostle. You know, and when, you know, when C. Peter Wagner ta- says you're an apostle, he's not saying you're a missionary. He's saying that you're part of the new restored apostolic office 
And, you know, and so Bill Johnson has been publicly portrayed and put forward as a, as a, as an apostle. Yep. You know, so, I mean, you know, no, no discussion of that at all. None whatsoever. I, yeah, uh, I'm left, I'm left speechless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's, it's hard. To I'm do just glad me. you're not going to make me listen to any more, uh, clips from that because it, it is it is just irritating it's so irritating it's turned me into a pearl <laughs> well mm. we knew that was your spiritual gift man you know so. <laughs> no let me just say one thing about that last clip though where he says they're not at war and all that you you sort of obliquely referred to you know the the war in heaven that's revelation 12 war arose in heaven scripture says yeah and michael michael and his angels fighting against the dragon right and the dra- the dragon and his angels fought back it says so it's clearly a war i mean that's what scripture teaches and and to deny that and without any recourse to scripture without any reference to anything in scripture uh it's just another example of how either Either he's deliberately undermining the truth of Scripture, or yeah. he's just making his theology up on the fly, and he doesn't really care whether it's right or wrong. Right. In fact, I think it's important to note here. Um, you you want to know how I found those sound bites? No. I, I well, you don't want to know, but I'll tell you. Anyway. I mean, I I do want to know. I, <laughs> yes, I do want to know. I don't know, but I would like to know. Okay, so here, here's how it happened. Okay, I literally went into uh, the the iTunes uh, you know podcast for Bethel Church. And I randomly picked a sermon. I downloaded it and randomly put my playhead at a particular point and listened for a couple of minutes and found a soundbite. I moved the playhead over randomly and dropped it in a random spot and then played it and found another soundbite. Yeah, is- you could do that. You, that doesn't surprise me at all. You could do that. with. As I said, I, I saw uh, somewhere last week where he had addressed – the sovereignty of God. And I thought, well, oh, that's interesting because that's a topic I wouldn't expect him to deal with. Right. And so I went looking for Bill Johnson on the sovereignty of God and found this. And basically he's saying, you know, God is in charge, but he's not in control, which again strikes me as just blasphemy, un- blasphemous right. and an unbiblical idea. God's not in control. Yeah. So, so how does he work all things together for good? Oh, I, I, it's beyond his power, man. We got to exercise our free will in order to make that happen, don't you know that? <laughs> that that is pretty much what he said. Yeah, that God has ceded control of this world to us, and now it's up to us through uh, uh, a means that sounds suspiciously like uh, prosperity gospel uh, word faith doctrine. Yeah, it's up to us to use our words to to declare and create and. And make the world uh, the way it ought to be. And if the world is bad, if there are evil things in the world, it's uh, it's because we're not exercising the sovereignty that God has sealed uh, ceded to us. Right. And yet, um, the, uh, the the crime rate in Bethel, yet uh, in Redding, California, continues to go up. Um, you know, the Redding is turning into a really awful place to live. So bad that the uh, uh, the uh, what the guardian angels, you know, that vigilante, you know, group has set up shop and began work in the streets there in order to help curb the crime rate in Reading. Yeah, fascinating. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I just saw that on, on a news feed a couple weeks ago. But, you know, so here's the point, is that um, if if Michael Brown were truly interested in being able to determine what it is that uh, Bill Johnson teaches and confesses and whether or not it's orthodox, all he needs to do is pick a random sermon 
and just drop the head, you know, the player head at, you know, any particular point. And I promise you, you're going to hear him pontificating and just spewing these theologically absurd statements without any biblical grounding. This is what he does. And I've been like, I've been covering this stuff for almost a decade now on my program. I know you have. And but I promise you, Michael Brown is not going to be willing to do that. When the when the Benny Hinn episode ran a couple of years ago, lots of people challenged him to uh, investigate more carefully before he went on and whitewashed Benny Hinn. And uh, Michael said he didn't have time to do that. He just didn't have time to to check. And, you know, he's constantly calling for, you know, people who disagree with him to call into his broadcast or, or come on his show and debate him. The problem is he doesn't really want a conversation. He doesn't want to hear answers to his questions. He doesn't want to uh, to listen to any opposing opinion. He will use that time to scold and berate. Yeah. And then when he gets a charismatic on who's, who's guilty of some serious error, he'll spend his time trying to whitewash it. It's, it's a disturbing trend on Michael Brown's broadcast that, that I've seen a pattern of since – you know, since he started uh, critiquing the uh, the Strange Fire Conference three or four years ago, but it goes farther back than that. Uh, have you read his book on uh, on you know and, on dealing with revival critics? No, he's actually written a whole book on it. I actually you know I had to find it in a used bookstore on Amazon D- to get. Does it. that go back to the Pensacola thing? Oh yeah, absolutely. The same template that he used to critique you and John MacArthur and the people who you know who are basically you know, pulling up the strange fire stuff, that is exactly the same thing he did in his, uh, in his book on you know, dealing with revival critics. You know, oh, you're mean-spirited. You know, you're, oh, it's the whole template. And so you, shameful. Yeah. Shameful. He loves to say that. Shameful. That's shameful. You know, but I'll tell you what's shameful. I mean, going back to the beginning thing you asked or you played where he was asking um, Bill Johnson how he kept this – movement sustained it, it it made me think of pensacola and how that thing melted down right into utter disaster and uh, left a massive debt and it was literally shameful for pretty much everybody who was involved in that right uh, because of financial malfeasance and all kinds of problems w- with that thing and yet uh when michael tells the story of the pensacola revival it makes it sound as if this was the greatest move of god ever yeah he was he was sort of the house theologian for that group and uh he he would slay people in the spirit and do all this gimmickry that uh you don't see him practicing now but he also refuses to critique it his yeah. nickname in those days was knock him down brown because he could slay these people in the spirit and uh hmm. That that became one of the hallmarks of Pensacola until the thing melted down into financial disaster. And um, you know, I, during the summer, you know, because I got so bored with all the movie sermons from the Seeker Driven guys, um, we we did some historical sermon reviews, and I reviewed some of the sermons that were preached at the Pensacola revival. In fact, the one that launched the revival itself was just chock full of absolute twistings of God's word. And weird narcissists, and uh, and then when it came to the you know the time after after the sermon, there was full blown heavy handed manipulation on the part of the guy who was doing the preaching. And that was the day that it was the Father's Day out you know the outpouring that kicks off the whole revival. And you know you you just listen to this thing and going, why would God the Holy Spirit show up in power 
after having the word of God in the Psalms butchered as badly as they were, and then having this guy engaging in these in this really kind of heavy-handed, you know, you know, pushing people for some kind of a response that you know, you know and then it, and then it, oh, apparently that was the breakthrough that caused the whole thing. And then you think of um, uh, who was the guy in Korea who you know the the big. Uh, charismatic guy in Korea who has the big shirt, Yongi Cho. Yongi Cho. He came in and you know to the Brown to the to the the revival, and he gave a prophecy that that revival wouldn't end until Jesus returned. Yeah, I would imagine, and a lot of the record of that stuff has been lost. They have purged a lot of the videos that were taken in those days from YouTube. You won't find them there. Uh, but I would imagine if you could collect a list of all the prophecies that were made. Uh, at that revival or any given charismatic revival, you'd find the the vast majority of them were false prophecies. Yeah, Benny Hinn's annual prophecies always turn out to be false prophecies. He he was predicting back in the '90s that Castro would die, and uh, that hasn't happened yet. Well, he will eventually. Just give it some time. You know, you're such a hater. That's what I said. You keep making that prophecy every year, and one of these years you're going to hit it, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's but right. Th- that, is, that is the pattern. They'll do that, and then, you know, if, if anything even close to what uh, has been spoken occurs, they'll claim that as a fulfillment of prophecy and a proof, and gullible people lap that up. They think it's great. Yeah, and in the meantime, people are not pointed to Christ. They're not pointed to what the Scriptures say. They're chasing after you know the, this this elusive next move of the spirit so they can go and bake their brains in the glory or whatever that means uh, and you know and they're and they're chasing after ridiculous gimmickry you know oh oh there were gold dust sightings there was a glory cloud uh, you know oh people people had oil coming out of their hands I mean this is no different than what the Roman Catholic Church has been engaging in for centuries you know. Go to this church and you can see this statue bleed tears and uh, of blood and you know and you know if you go to this this church you can wa- look at the the knuckle bone of Saint Bartholomew and and you can receive a, a gastrointestinal healing if you're having acid reflux you know and it, it's just the same kind of nonsense and it's all a theology of self glory and it doesn't point people to the cross. Plus there are. Hindu miracle workers that do it even better. I've traveled quite extensively in in uh, India, and um, you, you see some of this. Uh, the, you remember the uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh? He, he later named himself Osho, who took over an Oregon town about 25 years ago. I you remember, remember that guy? That. I remember that guy. Yeah, there, I mean, and there were he, like doctors and nurses and lawyers who like sold everything to go and be in his compound. Right. He was run out of Oregon and uh, went back to his hometown, which is Pune in India. And, and that happens to be where our Grace to, uh, Grace to India office is located. So I went by his ashram years ago while he was still alive and they were doing these things. And I'm telling you, what he was doing was exactly the same thing as the Toronto Blessing. He had masses of people dissolved in laughter on the floor. And it was exactly like Toronto. It was the very same thing. Hmm. I went to... Uh, uh, sort of a family amusement park thing in India once where they, they serve, you know, Indian food on a picnic style and all that. And then they have these little uh, entertainment shows all around. And one of the guys who was doing a show, there was a magician. And he had somehow managed to do this trick where uh, he, he went through this whole thing. And, and then he told the audience, now, smell your hands and you'll smell the, the fragrance of heaven or whatever. And somehow 
they had applied perfume to my hands. It was everybody's hands. Everybody in the audience had this this fragrance on their hands. I, to this day, I don't know how they how they did that. But uh, I mean, he wasn't pretending it. It was a true miracle. He was just a typical magician type guy. Right. And, uh, you know, tricks like that are the very same thing, I think, that's going on at Bethel with the gold dust from the ceiling. That's a pretty easy one to do. You just put gold glitter in the in the in ventilation the, system. And yeah, that's right. The right system. Just tip it out time. Just tip it over and poof. There's a glory cloud, you know. Yeah. If that was real gold, there'd be a lot of wealthy people in Bethel and. Oh, of course. No, nobody's bothered to collect that and have it assayed yet. No, no, there's no point in that. It, 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 it's all about the experience, man. Don't you understand? You gotta you have to have the ongoing encounter glory thingy, and and of course that means you have to be the sacrifice that God will cause his fire to fall on. Yeah, you know, because there's no war in heaven. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, and that's the thing. Start quoting back the the nonsense this guy says. And you realize this man is not teaching. He's not a Christian teacher. He's not a disciple or uh, you know, pointing people to what Christ taught and did. He's, he, he's a charlatan, you know, teaching people to look for the latest wave of the Spirit so you can come in and ride it on in. And what's missing in all of this, going back kind of framing within our conversation, is what real revival is, at least described in Scripture where people in mass are convicted of their sin and their need to be forgiven by God and are pointed to Christ and what he has done for us and bleeding and dying for our sins and called to repent and to be forgiven for God is merciful and kind. You know, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving and pardoning iniquity. You know, because as the psalmist said, if you, Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness of sins. Therefore, you are feared. And, and that, that's what's missing in all of this. this it's just a, a circus sideshow. It's like going to the circus to see the bearded lady and the tattooed guy and, and the midget you know, being fired from the cannon. None of that actually has anything to do with Christ and him crucified for our sins. Yeah, let me ask you a question. If you had an opportunity mm-hmm. to interview somebody like Bill Johnson and, or say somebody who's not even well-known, and, and you don't know much about him, but you want to find out whether he's a crank or truly orthodox, what what would be the most important thing you'd want to find out about him? For me, I'm always going to, you know, I'm going to try to find examples of his teaching, and who is he preaching about, himself or Christ? You know, Right, that- and if you're, if you're letting him speak for himself, you want to know... Can he articulate the gospel? Can he right. even explain what the gospel is? And that's the kind of question that should have been put to Bill Johnson. And I think it would have been extremely revealing because I wonder, having listened to many of his messages and hours of his teaching, I honestly wonder if the guy would be capable of articulating the gospel. Right. Well, he thinks his mission is to go out and demonstrate God's power in the world or whatever, you know, I, I, which I don't even know what that means. You know, that, that's not what we're called to do. But you're right. And what I think was fascinating is that uh, Michael Brown in the interview just said, you know, if you want to know what Bethel believes, just go to their website and look at their, their, their doctrinal statement. That's called filing cabinet uh, orthodoxy. 
You know, the, the, the question is not, can you find a page on your website that has an orthodox doctrine, you know, doctrinal statement? The question is, what's being preached Sunday after Sunday? Is it in line with and elucidating and proclaiming and defending what's on that doctrinal statement on that web page? Yeah, amen to that. And that's true not only of Bill Johnson, but a, a lot of the guys that you you frequently highlight on your broadcast, uh, Stephen Furtick and and even Joel Osteen and all that. You, you could probably find uh, orthodox statements of faith on their websites, but really that isn't the question. The question is, wh- what is he teaching? What does he say when he when he's turned loose to preach? Does he actually give the gospel? Does his teaching even match his right. His printed doctrinal statement, and and in most cases, uh, you'll find, uh, especially in marginal cases, false teachers always have orthodox doctrinal statements. It doesn't affect what they say or how they teach. The question is, does he preach the gospel? And if you've got a guy who who uh, never preaches the gospel, really, I don't care what kind of confession of faith he might sign his name to the bottom of. If if he really believed the gospel, he'd be preaching it. Right, exactly. I mean, you think about, you know, the mainline liberal denominations. I mean, when the uh, Presbyterian Church USA went liberal, or a whole bunch of liberal teachers out there saying, oh, we hold to Westminster. Well, then why aren't you preaching it? You know, why are you not actually, you know, preaching from con- the word of God with conviction, the very tenets of the faith that you say that you subscribe to? Don't sit there and tell me you you believe, oh, you hold the Westminster when you haven't dusted the thing off and taught anything from it. Hey, I'm with you on that. You know, every every major uh, seminary or, or denomination or institution of any kind that has apostatized has gone through that, where the, the chief culprits of the doctrinal decline will give lip service to yeah. sound doctrine, but they don't teach it. In fact, what they teach undermines it. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of these guys who think they've proved someone's orthodoxy by pointing to their doctrinal statement. And, and of all people, Michael Brown ought to know that. Yep. You know, so, and, you know, what I think would be fascinating, what, you know, if Michael Brown wants to come on Fighting for the Faith, I'd love to have him on. Um, there's no way I'm going to go on his program because I saw how he, you know, stacked the deck when you went on his program to basically shut you down and not actually engage you in, in you know, in-depth conversation. Yeah, whoever controls the mic kind of, uh, you know, he would ask me questions and not even wait for the answer, yep. you know. Yep, And uh, like I said, his 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 goal is not to have a conversation but to scold. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, he said he wanted to talk about, you know, what I'd taught at the uh, – uh, strange fire conference he didn't ask me a single question about anything i said at the strange fire conference he cherry-picked some comments from the q and a's that things other people had said mm-hmm. uh took took them even out of context and uh, quoted these partial statements to me and and demanded that i explain things that i hadn't even said uh, but then he didn't even wait for my explanation or or feedback he just would say shameful 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 <laughs> shameful yeah i'm gonna shame so you. I, yeah that's that isn't that isn't discernment, and especially when you're going to turn around and uh, help whitewash a rank false prophet. Yeah, and and here's the thing, uh, and I'm going to make this clear for some of our listeners who are on the fence regarding the gifts of the Spirit. You do not have to be a cessationist to see that Bill Johnson is a false teacher and a false prophet and somebody who is a dangerous twister of God's word. You can actually believe in the ongoing gifts of the Spirit and come to that conclusion. You do not 
have to be a cessationist to see that that man is a wolf and a threat to the body of Christ. That's exactly right. I, I, one of the one of the problems I think with uh, the whole charismatic environment today is that too many people are uh, have been indoctrinated with this fear that if you criticize something and then and you don't you know it turns out that maybe that really is the Holy Spirit moving, then you've committed a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and it's an unpardonable sin. And so they're kept quiet by superstition, even yeah. though they can see these things aren't right. They're just afraid to speak against anything that is done in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so all kinds of foolishness yeah. is done in the name of the Holy Spirit. And and one of the things I said at Strange Fire is that's the that's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To attribute to him words he's never said or things he's never done mm-hmm. is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah it, the, the, they, they don't care about careful exegesis of what it is that Jesus was referring to there at all. You know, they, right, they, and he was he was talking about a very specific sin against the Holy Spirit, yeah. and uh, and it wasn't suggesting that every blasphemy that invokes the Holy Spirit's name is unpardonable. That that's part of that superstition. He was yeah. he was talking about a very specific sin that had just been committed by this group of Pharisees who attributed a miracle of Jesus that they knew was a true miracle. Yep, they attributed it to Satan. Yeah, and, and they did it with their eyes wide open. That's what made it unpardonable because there was no opportunity and no no possibility that they could be brought to repentance for something that they had done so hard-heartedly and so deliberately. Yeah. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit when you understand, you know, scripturally what the work of the and function of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer and even in his work in unbelievers and bringing them to faith is that the Holy Spirit's always pointing people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit right, not not himself. Not highlighting himself. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's 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 almost as if the Holy Spirit is, you know, set up this board, you know, it's got a big portrait of Jesus on it. And he's standing behind the board, pointing to the picture, like, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. And you can never really he's not interested in pointing people to himself. He's always interested in pointing him to Christ. And that that's exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Convict the world of sin and unbelief and, you know, and point them to Jesus. So, yeah, that's that that is the number one reason why I, I think uh, what's going on at Bethel uh, in Reading is is to be warned against and not supported because it doesn't point people to Christ. It points them towards these questionable phenomena that are attributed to the Holy Spirit uh, when, in fact, the Holy Spirit really has nothing to do with any of that. Right. And all of that stuff is designed to point – well, actually point you to the person making the claims of these phenomena so that you can – trust them and and their pearls of wisdom i mean after all they they've got the inside track with god they're hearing directly from heaven you know and god wanted bill johnson to write this this book on god is good because the church it's gone two thousand years without this new revelation about the goodness of god and so now we finally have god telling and commissioning bill johnson to write this book so that we can truly once and for all understand this for real what how good god is as if I couldn't figure this out by reading the Bible. Amen. So, well, Phil, thank you for your time today and uh, and coming on and uh, yeah, uh, even for you know, allowing a little extra time for the rant there at the end. <laughs> That's okay. Thanks for having me. I love it when you go on a rant. Okay. Well, so well, that was a privilege to actually see your face on Skype doing a rant you you uh you actually turn red when you do a good rant yeah i i, I get it I, I i can't feel nothing about these things i actually feel very strongly about them so 
You know, because yeah. ultimately what's at stake are people's souls. They're, I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I, I really fear for the people at Bethel that they're going to hear from Christ, depart from me, I never knew you. And, the, and they'll say, but did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not, you know, do all these things? And, and, and yet they're, they're chasing after these signs and wonders, but they're not chasing after Christ. And that's the difference. Well, peace to you, brother, and uh, Lord's blessings on your travels. Thank you. All right. Keep the faith. All right. We will uh, talk next time. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>